Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. There are a few things which almost all Angelinos have experienced, and one of them is driving or being driven around World Way, the loop road that serves LAX's nine terminals. If you didn't know it was called World Way, that doesn't actually surprise me, as I'm confident everyone has their own nickname for the loop, my guests and I certainly do. The good news is that Los Angeles World Airports, more commonly known as LAWA, recognizes the issues and has done so for some time now. That's why the airport is in the midst of a $15 billion capital improvement program and is why the place appears to be in a constant state of construction. The improvements are being made to all terminals, and $5.5 billion is dedicated to the Landside Access Modernization Program which thankfully has a shorter acronym of LAMP, including a new LAX economy parking facility, a consolidated rental car facility, and most importantly, a new automated people mover. More funding is allocated for the Midfield Satellite Concourse, which adds eight gates to the Tom Bradley Terminal, as well as the Airfield and Terminal Modernization Project, which includes an airfield, new Terminal 9, and other improvements. In summary, there is a lot going on. Today, we are focusing on the LAX Airport Metro Connector, which, as the name implies, connects the metro, including rail and bus, to the new automated people mover. It's a game-changing project, which will significantly change the way many people arrive and depart LAX, which is one of the busiest airports in the world. So who better to discuss this incredible project than Andrew Byrne, managing partner at Grimshaw, an internationally acclaimed architecture firm founded in 1980 by Sir Nicholas Grimshaw with 600 employees across eight offices around the world. Grimshaw is the firm behind the design of the LAX Airport Metro Connector, and Andrew has been leading the charge for this incredible project reshaping such an important component of Los Angeles. As a firm, Grimshaw has won over 200 design awards, and they design everything from sports arenas to cultural centers, and are arguably the world's foremost authority in the design of airports, rail, and mass transit projects. Andrew moved to Los Angeles after leading the complete redesign of London Bridge Station, which is a marvel of design and engineering. That project had to systematically overhaul a station which accommodated 90 million passengers per year while maintaining operations and not disrupting service. In this episode, we talk about the complexities of designing a mass transit system, 
what it's like to work for the LA Metro, and how Andrew sees public transit evolving in Los Angeles. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Building LA. Sam, hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to dive uh, right in, uh, talk about the LAX Airport Metro Connector. One thing that's great about this project is that Almost all of our listeners, I would imagine, uh, are very familiar with LAX, both the positives and negatives of it. And if you are aware of it, you know that there is major work happening to better connect the airport with the metro and all the public transport connections to the east. What people may not know are specifics of the plan, timing, and of course, Grimshaw, your firm's role in it. So my first question is, Andrew, could you give our listeners an overview of the breadth of the travelers who will go through the Metro Connector once the project is complete in, I believe, 2024? It will be a transformational project for the way in which people experience LAX. LAX is in the process of building an elevated automated people mover, which is a train that will be free to ride on that will take passengers from the terminals to various locations. And the Metro Connector is the hub at which all of the various spokes of transit come to a central point where you can actually jump on to that automated people mover and head into your terminal. So it's a a truly intermodal transit hub, and it's going to really shift a lot of people's experiences from uh, the current day. So it brings together all of the Metro riders. So there will be a new service from Metro, which will be um, a rebranded green line and the Crenshaw line, which is currently under construction and not yet operational, will come into the station and you'll be able to uh, ride, say, from downtown on Metro all the way into the Metro connector and then transfer onto this automated people mover and into the airport terminal of your choice. There'll also be um, a kiss and ride drop-off, what we commonly call a a kiss and ride drop-off. So ideal for Lyft and Uber users and family and friends who are dropping off and picking up uh, people using the airport and who wish to avoid the uh, traveling all the way into what I refer to as the horseshoe of despair in LAX, um, where now you'll have a more seamless drop-off experience and then be able to jump onto the automated people mover. It also has a lot of bus facilities. There are 16 bus bays there uh, that regional and local buses that will create um, new and better connections into the airport, plus a lot of uh, local area workforce that uh, actually are traveling into the airport every day as employees of the various airlines and, and offerings in the airport as well can use this with new dedicated protected bike lanes and a bike hub facility as well. So it really brings together a lot of different modes of transportation into one central hub. And this is uh, where the mixing valve occurs and uh, you can connect in and hopefully get in and out of the airport in a far more efficient and seamless way as compared to um, some of the torturous journeys that exist uh, today. I like the horseshoe of despair. I always call it the loop of death uh, is, is, my, is my term. I was recently being picked up by my wife at LAX. It was late at night on a Tuesday. I'd been flying in from a business trip 
I think it took about 20 minutes to get to the airport from our apartment. And then she picked me up at Terminal 2. And we then spent the next 25 minutes just going around the loop uh, before then driving 20 minutes back home. So I think everyone will be very excited about the possibility of avoiding that experience, which is just structurally kind of inefficient. Is the plan that all the rideshare drop-offs are happening at the LAX airport metro connector instead of the current location? There is going to be a big change to the current Uber and Lyft area, designated area at LAX because um, that's the footprint in which um, Southwest Airlines are planning to expand a, a new Terminal 1 east into, and it will be relocated when the automated people mover is up and running. Uh, it won't be exclusively at the Metro Connector. Um, there are a number of locations where you'll be able to jump onto that service and, and ride into LAX. Uh, for our facility, there's a, a really great connection into the central hub and there is some amenity and services and retail offerings in there as well that might make this a little more desirable depending on what your wants and needs are on the way to the airport. And I said that it's opening in 2024. Is that, I know that these public projects can, their schedule can take on a life of its own, but is that still accurate? <laughs> Yes, the official line is uh, we're targeting a December 2024 opening date. It is intrinsically linked with other major infrastructure projects. We need the Crenshaw line to be uh, operational and, and working uh, for our Metro Hub to uh, also be able to operate. And of course, the automated people mover that LAX are delivering needs to be operational uh, for the intermodal activity or functionality of our station to come into full effect. So we are codependent on a couple of other projects, but uh, December 24 should be a great moment, ribbon cutting and opening and a new experience of seamlessly sliding in and out of uh, LAX that will be unrecognizable to those of us who have had similar experiences to you in uh, the horseshoe of despair. That's great. Well, I can, I'm excited for my holiday travel then in, in 2024 already. When Grimshaw was first awarded the project, how do you approach a, a design for a space where people are often rushing, potentially a little bit stressed out and they're traveling, navigating tight schedules? How do you incorporate that and kind of mitigate that as part of the design process? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the salient and insightful question. And um, I'd probably attempt to answer that through analogy. I don't know if uh, you're anything like me, but um, there's got to be a drawer or a box somewhere in your house where you've kept all of your electronics and um, a year after not touching it, you'll pull it out and there'll be a spaghetti junction of wires that uh, are, are intertwined and entangled. And it takes uh, quite a bit of time to unpick. And in essence, a lot of our transportation projects are really about uh, sorting out those paths of movement and uh, un entangling them and ensuring that there's a very seamless, intuitive and, and simple method of navigating through the project so that you're able to make the various movements as comfortably as possible. And that really is the, the starting point. A lot of the organizational ideas around the building are centered on the 
locations of the attractors. In this case, it might be the position of the platforms for LA Metro or the position of the automated people move for station. It might be where we can get the buses into the site and where the bus bay terminals are going to be. Understanding the desire lines between those functions and organizing them and reorganizing them in a way that they become very efficient, very clear, very legible. And uh, that's a kind of key commencement point for um, organizing the the building and the program. And from there, we move into the kind of from the organizational or diagrammatic conceit, we move into the experiential and how you can reinforce the simplicity and legibility of navigating through the building with complementary architecture that actually elevates the experience and, if possible, can de-stress the transition from one mode to the other. Because as a building function, that's that's really its primary job is to ensure that um, it doesn't make what it can be a stressful or confusing experience uh, any worse. So Grimshaw is world-renowned for a lot of types of architecture, but in particular, large transport infrastructure airports, train stations, bus terminals all over the world. In looking at the renderings, which we'll, we'll post online and are very beautiful, there seem to be some design themes that translate between the projects. And I know you worked on London Bridge for a long time. Can you speak to some of those fundamental design qualities that you see as maybe a theme through a lot of Grimshaw's work? I think the the intuitive wayfinding aspect of our projects is quite critical so that we're not reliant on a person who is maybe experiencing an environment for the first time or is running really late for a flight and they're very Mm -hmm. stressed out that they're not going to make their vacation. We're not reliant on them stopping reading a lot of information on a sign to be able to navigate their way through the building. So Intrinsic in the architecture and the arrangement of our transportation projects, we need to ensure that there's a legibility in the way that the elements are organized. And we need to use architectural devices to help people move through the spaces. So to take that from the abstract into the practical, just visual and spatial connections, there's nothing more powerful than getting off a train and being able to see where you need to go to next. Because if you've clocked that location, it becomes a far more intuitive movement to follow your line of travel. That is somewhat linked to the way in which the uh, volumes are designed. You know, we need to ensure that there's a sufficient scale and spatial generosity that's provided so that you can make those visual and spatial connections and have that orientation within a larger environment. And then what follows on from that quite naturally is an obligation within your design to be intelligent about ensuring the the space doesn't become cluttered, doesn't Mm -hmm. um, introduce a whole host of additional potential visual barriers or, you know, hanging advertising Mm -hmm. or um, elements that uh, serve as, as distractions from the space. 
I think that those are the the real key cornerstones that we work with. And then using natural daylight has really been a, a sort of signature move for the practice over the course of the last 20 to 30 odd years within this space. And that is, uh, again, almost a kind of... Um, uh, primordial or subliminal desire for people to move towards the light. And if mm-hmm. you place your escalators and elevators underneath some diffuse top lighting in a transit environment, it becomes immediately more apparent where the movement needs to occur and, and where the, the direction for the onward journey is. So we've always used that as a moment of um, both celebration and excitement and identity but but also to draw people into the locations where they need to be to understand where Mm then their their onward journey might be next one thing that i've always found really successful about grimshaw projects and i used to work right next to the fulton station in new york city there's moments where you actually do want to pause particularly if it's your first few times the project and look up at the spectacular oculus structure but cleverly it feels like those moments where you want to stop and pause have already been thought into the design so you're not stopping in a major thoroughfare where <laughs> someone where there's a you know a whole host of people rushing towards their destination and i think that some of the transportation centers that i've been to that aren't as successful which obviously grimshaw did not design there's <laughs> often a sign that's placed right in the middle of your main thoroughfare and of course you then have large families and people standing in this area where you're trying to kind of squeeze past with your roller suitcase and it becomes this this point of congestion that is supposed to be just a sign showing you where you go but you have to figure out the signage and understand i love that point that you made that if you can see where you're going and you intuitively see and know, okay, I can see the escalator. Oh, is that? I think there's a corner of a truck. I can see the train over there. Then you just intuitively understand, oh, yep, I go, I walk to the right, I walk to the left, whatever it is. Mm. Well, this project, a, a transit hub of this nature, the typology is actually it's quite freeing because we're not overly concerned about creating a really efficient performative building envelope there's not a huge amount of internal air conditioned space we're providing Mm. a lot of shelter and shade and amenity for people to use within the building but um we've got great flexibility in the way that we have elements that may begin life, particularly at the airport metro connector, beginning life as a simple canopy providing shade shelter for people about to board a bus. They can then transform and rise and then merge together to create an oversailing roof environment. And Mm -hmm. the flexibility to create a more dynamic envelope through there not only creates dynamism and excitement, but um, it shows, again, this intuitive notion of something is happening in this direction. This is a grander space. There's a, an acceleration. There's a crescendo in terms mm-hmm. of the experience of the building through here, which naturally draws you in the direction that you need to travel for your onward journey as well. So it's, um, it's a really enjoyable yet challenging environment to, or, or building typology to work within. So the project was approved by 
I believe, the Metro Board of Directors, I think in 2014. It's quite a long time ago. And then it was awarded to Grimshaw and Gruen Associates. And if I've got my facts straight, that was in 2017. Were you involved in the project at the time? And if even if you weren't, can you tell us how you were able to win the project? So the success in this in winning this commission was primarily down to establishing a culture for our team. So uh, in the submission, the executive architect of record was uh, Gruen Associates and Grimshaw is the design lead with um, Arup and their multi-dis engineering team um, leading on a lot of the, the technical requirements for the station. And we had been successful five years prior to the award of this project uh, in securing a visioning exercise for the reimagination of LA Union Station for LA Metro. And I think through that process, they not only uh, became perhaps more intimately aware of our uh, station design capability through our portfolio and some of the initial visioning work that we we did on LA Union Station, but really they understood who we were uh, from a cultural perspective and what it was like to work with with us and what our team dynamic was across multiple disciplines. And I think that that gave them a great level of confidence and assurance that um, we were an excellent match for what was really, at the time, a really aspirational project for LA Metro. You know, there are a number of line expansions that are the direct beneficiaries from the Measure M vote outcome that expands the network. But this project is set aside from those particular endeavors because it's a unique multimodal transit hub and is not subject to conforming to the same type of standard station design guidelines that exist for uh, the expansion of the the typical metro lines. So this was an individual one-off project for LA Metro and um, it is aspirational in its intentions. Hmm. You mentioned Gruen and, and the rest of the consultant team and obviously the project with Union Station, which maybe we can dive into a little bit on that later. What do you think is the key to success? It seems like Grimshaw and Gruen have developed, you know, over those two projects, really successful partnership. AOR, design architect relationships, historically, sometimes there's some friction there. How have you kind of managed that and what do you attribute to the success? Well, that's something that I think uh, I'm incredibly proud of from a Grimshaw standpoint is that we've always had really great and successful collaborative relationships with all of our partners. I think it helps that we are a practice that exhibits a culture in the shape of our founder. You know, so Nicholas is is not at all a prima donna. Um, he's a relatively somewhat humble, borderline introverted individual, incredibly talented, uh, thoughtful, considerate, and uh, you know, really a, a visionary, but um, doesn't really play the ego card. And I think mm. um, as a practice, we've been able to expand and, and evolve and yet still hold some of that sensibility. And I think that um, we have a huge level of respect for um, all of our teaming partners and what they bring to the table. What you know, One thing I would say, Sam, is that ultimately the success of any relationship, be it client, architect, contractor, executive architect, design architect, it, it does come down to the individual and personal relationships between the, the key 
project leaders and the tone that they they set as a culture. And I have to admit, Deborah Gerard, who leads both Gruen's Union Station and the Airport Metro Connector project on behalf of Gruen, is not only a very close personal friend, but uh, you know, a brilliant professional and a brilliant collaborator. And I think the fact that uh, we live in the same neighborhood and uh, we, for a while, played on the same softball team means that uh, that personal <laughs> connection has really helped keep the, the magic of our partnership alive throughout the, the process with this project. You, know, you mentioned Sir Nicholas. I'm curious. I know that he is uh, the founder. He, re- I think, he retired as chairman a couple of years ago, I believe. How involved is he in the in the firm these days? Current day, uh, not so much. He's observing more of a watching brief and is not active in leading any of our projects, but um, remains very very enthusiastic around when he's sought out commenting on project opportunities and and hearing how things are going. And as I said, he's been an incredibly strong mentor for the generation of leadership that um, he's ushered into the practice. And um, I think that's one of the really incredible achievements of uh, Grimshaw as a global architectural practice is the success in which we've been able to navigate a true secession into um, a practice that will endure hopefully for decades to come. And it's not always easy to move past an incredibly influential founding architect. So it's something that I know Nick is very proud of and something that um, I think the practice is able to help perhaps indicate to uh, similar practices that are facing some of these challenges uh, a viable path forward to evolution and um, longevity. Can you give me a sense about how many folks are in the Grimshaw office in LA and some of the other projects that you're currently working on and obviously can talk about? Yeah, sure. We've got just under 30 in the Los Angeles studio at the moment. Um, It's about 100 odd in in New York now as well. And as a practice, we've never really targeted growth for growth's sake. We haven't set KPIs for expansion. Really, it's been project-led and it's been the, the studio evolving through the opportunities that we have. And at times we've grown and adjusted the size of our practice in response to project success or, or project opportunities. So we're we're a little under 30 at the moment. And by the end of this calendar year, we'll need to expand by four or five people. And with our outlook in 2024, I think that that growth trajectory will continue. And I think we'll, we'll be... Um, closer to uh, the the mid-40s by the end of 25. And part of that is because here in California, as our audience will, will attest, things don't necessarily happen very quickly. CEQA is a wonderful piece of legislation, but uh, it certainly elongates the delivery or gestation period of projects. So we've got a number of uh, projects that have been in our pipeline for quite some time that start to uh, come to bear in 2024 in, in a kind of more substantial way, which supports some of this anticipated expansion. So I won't 
give you an exhaustive list because I'm sure you'll nod off and uh, <laughs> and uh, get a little bored. But I'll I'll highlight a couple of key projects that we're um, really excited about. Um, one is a new studios project just adjacent to our our studio in the arts district um, on the sixth and Alameda site, which some folk may remember was a subject of a, um, a really large entitlement submission from Herzog and de Moron to build some really, really tall towers. Yeah. Subsequent to that project um, dying on the vine, our client purchased the site, East End Studios, and they're delivering 16 film studios plus two creative workplace buildings. And that's been moving through entitlements over the course of uh, this calendar year and is due to break ground in the summer of 2024. And we're really excited about that. I mean, it's a, a huge project over 750,000 square feet of, uh, mm-hmm. of floor area and bringing over a thousand jobs to the arts district to help balance the distribution of residential development and work creation within the neighborhood so that um, there isn't the risk of the arts district becoming an empty bedroom community for downtown workers. So we're excited Mm -hmm. about um, that as a, a flagship project. Another that has been keeping us very busy over the last few years that we've been um, quite quiet about is um, the design leadership and and architectural uh, remit to build the four stations for Brightline West, which will be a new high-speed rail line connecting Los Angeles to Las Vegas. So um, we've had a four-year engagement with Brightline now across a a number of different studies and commissions and uh, moving forward on the basis of receiving a a federal grant, which is... um, due to be announced in the coming months, will have secured a sufficient portion of the funding to commence construction. And before the end of 2023, they're planning on breaking ground to build that new piece of infrastructure. And it's a project, Sam, that we're super proud to be involved in. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of project that we want to be associated with because, quite frankly, it's transformational. I think it's incredible that a private sector company is delivering public infrastructure. This will be the first genuine high-speed train line in North America where trains will be running uh, at 186 miles per hour or 300 kilometers per hour, which is the international designation as true high-speed. And it will take now a little over two hours and 15 minutes to get from the LA basin to Las Vegas rather than the uh, five and a half hours that I endured when I Mm ill-advisedly tried to drive down the 15 from Vegas back to LA on a Sunday afternoon. So I think um, that's going to become a really impactful development. And of course, there's the provision to connect that service to Californian high-speed rail um, uh, through the high desert corridor that uh, would link Palmdale through to Victorville. So they're, they're great buildings and great stations. They're different to the airport metro connected in the sense that they're more of a hybrid between a, a hospitality project and a transportation mm-hmm. project where there'll be departure lounges for oh, nice. guests to enjoy before hitting the train. And uh, that will be a, a really unique product and service that I think will, you know, resonate for years to come in terms of infrastructure development in North America. And then if I can, just one final one, which is um, 
again, it's been a, a little under the radar because of um, some some concerns around confidentiality. But uh, in 2020, we were successful in the pursuit of a developer-led project to reimagine Piers 30 and 32 on the Bay of San Francisco. So that's... Um, it's a big surface car park today. It sits underneath the shadow of the Bay Bridge and um, there was an opportunity for us to deal with the degraded infrastructure and the collapsing seawall to introduce a greater level of uh, sea rise resilience and, um, and flood resilience for downtown San Francisco and the South Bay. So we're actually looking at removing the existing pier it's falling apart and uh, crumbling into the bay and it's not fit for purpose we're looking at removing the existing pier infrastructure and replacing that with a much smaller footprint that um, gives back what's called uh, bay fill gives back uh, open area to the water which is great for the local ecology and um, will deliver 365,000 well actually slightly under 400,000 square feet of creative workplace and a market wow. hall on the Embarcadero. But the really exciting thing is the community offering, which is a aquatic center and a swimming pool. So we have a, an Olympic-sized heated swimming pool plus a learn-to-swim and a therapy pool all floating on a steel barge wow. in the Bay of San Francisco, plus a high dive area to dive into the bay, a kayak and ha hand-powered water vehicle launch area and kayak hire center as well. So it's a really exciting prospect and I think it'll be a really memorable place. And supporting that project across the road is um, 750 uh, affordable and market rate uh, housing units as well so it's a really substantial project and uh we're, we're moving through with the the city uh on on that in 2024 as well so um yeah excited about uh some of the future impacts and the reach that these projects might have i can't wait to see that project and go visit it that sounds incredible and also just really fun project to work on i wanted to talk to you about la metro as a client and i'm curious about I would imagine that there are an overwhelming number of stakeholders and voices at a project like this. But I just want to be, I want to make sure I have this great. Your client was technically LA Metro, but you inter interfaced a lot with LAWA and I would imagine some other kind of jurisdictions and, and firms as well. Can you just talk a little bit about that relationship? I've had experience with different transit agencies. They each have their own cultures and each have their own pros and cons. LA Metro is doing an incredible job navigating what I would consider to be the hardest landscape in which a transit agency has to, to operate within. There's, there's a host of challenges that exist within LA County that they need to navigate and within the cities in which they, they need to um, liaise with, uh, as well as the, the communities that uh, they're impacting. Um, so overall, I would say as a client and as an agency, I have uh, nothing but incredible admiration for 
what they are able to achieve because it, it is very challenging to achieve absolutely anything in the context in which they work. So again, I think our individual project has benefited from just some amazing individuals in leadership positions. And that that's what's facilitated the success of the project. And, you know, as a, as a, quick um, shout out and name drop here. You know, I think that Tim Lindholm's uh, oversight um, and governance of the project has been exemplary and has really set up this project for success from its initial days. And uh, Corey Zelmer as well, um, when he was on the project and, and then more recently, Paul Wang, who overtook the project, I believe, around the design development phase and um, is still leading from the architectural and design side through construction administration has been incredible. But I, I would say this is a, a politician's answer, Sam. This is not what you wanted to hear. You, you're actually asking what's it like working for LA Metro. And let's um, pull off the varnish and be honest. There, there are a lot of departments within Metro and they have very specific agendas and specific requirements and specific metrics to meet for their own objectives and at times they're conflicting so it's painful it's a painful process because what you need from a lighting uh, or energy consumption standpoint may be a direct contradiction to what the security team at, mm -hmm. uh, at metro require to monitor and safely operate a station in the late hours of the evening. Mm -hmm. um, so navigating and achieving or working through the approvals process for the technical criteria on uh, stations is, um, is a really, really tough journey. It's an undervalued aspect of being an architectural professional is that ability to bring people together that are part of a large organizations such as LA Metro, there are other clients I've worked with other clients that are private clients that have an abundance of stakeholders where they all have their own set of requirements and rules that make a ton of sense. But in order you need to bring them all together to map out a path forward, as you said, and that's outside of any architectural education, but is a key to working with a client and developing a, a design that, that, that functions and that meets requirements and is ultimately successful. So I have a last question about the project. Public transport, this is a big question. Public transport, as you know, is a, is a relatively controversial topic in LA. Cars dominate here. You are more qualified than most to suggest potentially ways in which the city can promote the use of public transportation and release us from the burden of being such a car-centric city. I'm curious if you have any tricks up your sleeve or ideas about how we can go about that. Hey, I'm glad you asked. No problem, Sam. Um, I, I've been ready to solve transit in Los Angeles for years now. I've just been waiting for somebody to ask the question. This is, this is easy. No, no problem. Um, uh, easy, easy question. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that I think that at times there's a very lazy appraisal of the culture of Southern California to say that people in Los Angeles just love being in their cars and they don't want to give that up and they don't like the idea of having to catch a train or catch mm -hmm. a bus and public transit is beneath them. I, I think that that is completely incorrect and um, a very lazy assessment. I think the reality 
here, and I alluded to this a little earlier when I was talking about the task in front of Metro, I think that now that I've had some time, um, you know, I was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, which is, uh, you know, one particular type of city and then spent nearly 13 years living in London, in central London, and then have moved to Los Angeles. And it's now, um, as you said, almost six years of learning about um, this city. And the thing that strikes me is that it's a very, very challenging landscape to be able to promote and provide a successful transit network because this is a unique urban morphology. You know, this the, the polycentric nature of Los mm-hmm. Angeles and the patchwork quilt of various uh, city agencies that exist mm-hmm. means that there is no simple silver bullet to solving transit. I think that there's been conversations around punitive solutions such as introducing congestion charges and the like on particular roadways to discourage the use of private vehicles as a means of mobility. But I don't see any of those mean those methods being successful until you've got a viable, effective alternative. What we need to do is to manage the threshold of discomfort, the threshold of inconvenience. And at the moment, the maturity of the transit network and the, the coverage of square footage of the transit network map is somewhat short of being able to provide the level of service that uh, you need for it not to be inconvenient to use public transportation. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is that for some very specific journeys, it might make a lot of sense, but so often the movements that you need to make, um, it's not just solving the last mile, it's solving the last three, four or five miles. Um, mm-hmm. And until we get a greater level of coverage throughout the system, then I don't think you can demand that people give up their vehicles. And I think that there'll be a tipping point with the maturity of the transportation network with the expansion of Metro's lines where that threshold of inconvenience starts to rebalance. And, you, mm-hmm. you know, you'll have the thought that actually crawling on the 10 is soul-destroying time in my life. It doesn't mm-hmm. even even having excellent podcasts like Building LA to listen to will, will not uh, overcome the soul-destroying experience of only creeping forward at one-foot increments on the 10. And you'll choose the experience of being able to move through um, on the expo line uh, with mm-hmm. with less obstruction uh, as a preferred solution. So I, th- I think that's where we need to work to. And I think we also need to acknowledge that there there is no world in which these it's not a zero-sum game there's no world in which we move entirely to a transit dependent system and we don't still celebrate the use of single occupancy vehicles there's a great freedom Mm -hmm. and liberty that exists there and i think we Mm -hmm. should acknowledge that it's not something that should uh be derided and uh people should be chastised for uh enjoying i think uh, these things can be complementary and you know you'll you need the offer and the opportunity to make a make a choice, and the choice needs to be a, a good one. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I think the, the car is at the center of the design of LA. When you look at LA's personality as a city, 
the car is is fundamental to that and i think there's always going to be an appeal to getting in your car in la and i think culturally as well there's always going to be an appeal to that but I tend to agree with you. I don't think the punitive actions are going to work like they actually have worked relatively successfully, in my opinion, in London. London has an amazing public transport network. And so it's very easy to jump on a train. And in fact, most of the time, that's a better option than getting in the car. So I want to I want to change tack here and, and talk a little bit about, about you and your career. We've touched on a little bit about Grimshaw's, I think, ambition, the projects that Grimshaw has on the West Coast. I am curious about why you moved out here in the beginning though and sort of what the initial ambition of opening up, and I believe you did open up the office here, but what the initial ambition was at that time. Sure. From a business standpoint, we had found project opportunities where we had won competitions or we'd been invited to really significant commissions that um, had prompted the business or, or actually had a pre, you know, a, a requirement to have a, a presence locally for multiple years. And um, that sort of enabled the, the practice to grow its global network. But it wasn't necessarily through strategic consideration. It wasn't that we sat down and said, right, in the next five years, we really need to have a permanent studio in Melbourne because of X, Y, and Z reason, it was really opportunity and project led. And um, the business had evolved to a point in the early 2010s where we had become, made the transition to a, a global network of studios. And we turned our attention towards more strategic investment in an expansion of that network. And Looking at the the map, it was fairly obvious that um, the glaring omission in terms of time zones and representation was on the west coast of the US. And we started discussing the prospect of our first venture into a deliberate strategic positioning of a new studio and uh, had a lot of internal conversations about where that uh, location would be would be best based. And um I think there there was a lot of lot of conversation around um, both San Francisco and Los Angeles, and ultimately there was a lot of enthusiasm and in, in interest in LA because of the unique urban condition, because of some of the challenges, because of the prospect of. Um, although it may be long-term and incremental, uh, really significant transformation over mm -hmm. the course of the next few decades in terms mm -hmm. of densification and transportation and um, the way in which the city can be experienced. And it was really exciting. So that was the kind of fledgling conversation around laying down more permanent routes here. And I think the practice was also quite good at acknowledging that um, we tend to benefit from importing and exporting knowledge into mm -hmm. new regions and i think that there was a an acknowledgement amongst the partnership that there's plenty that we can learn from southern california and from california in general and there's a um a great opportunity to help evolve and inform our, our practice globally by having these experiences locally mm. so i as i said i was in 
London at the time, and uh, I was a principal with the practice. And in our designation, that means uh, that means not an owner of the practice, just uh, the the high, highest level of uh, seniority in terms of studio leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the partners approached me and uh, asked whether I'd be interested in leaving my station in London and relocating to Los Angeles to start a new studio. And Sam, I was a terrible, terrible negotiator. I was so excited by the opportunity. I said yes without even considering what the terms might be and um, maybe even a guilty admission to make here on the podcast just because it's the two of us and uh, no one else will, will hear this. No, no one's listening. Yeah. No one will listen and hear this. Um, it, I'd actually agreed to move myself and my family and start this new studio in Los Angeles before I'd ever actually been to the city. So um, after making that agreement, a couple of weeks later, I found myself landing in LA wondering exactly how I was going to make sense of it all. Wow. You're a managing partner now at Grimshaw. I believe there are seven managing partners at Grimshaw. Is that correct? Sounds right. Uh, I haven't done the math, but that sounds right. I'm curious... And I don't know if you have a typical week, but let's just say you did have a typical week. How much of that is spent on a project level mm. versus company level doing the tasks that are associated with being a managing partner and the responsibilities that you have in winning work, managing the business? How do you split that up? Yeah, it's a it's a constant challenge. You know, I think probably from meeting me and our interactions, you've probably gleaned that, you know, my happy place is actually on projects. I love working on projects and even to be even more explicit, the opportunity to pick up the pen, be it on the iPad or on, on tracing paper, which I still, <laughs> you know, ashamedly uh, still tend to use quite a lot rather than uh, be reliant on sort of the digital sketching, which I do enjoy as well. But, you know, I, I, I that's, that's where I go to get the adrenaline kick and the rush and that's what I love. So I do my best to fight as hard as I can to protect those engagements and that time on projects and do my best to carve out designated periods of time where um, I can focus on that. There are weeks where I fail miserably and um, you know it tends to be a little bit cyclical because we do have obligations um, in terms of studio management around our end of financial year reporting and our formulation of the subsequent financial year budget and a lot of business administration type of uh, activities that are time consuming and also a lot of um, you know people based activities that are really important uh, to me and, and to the practice as well uh, we have a period uh, over the summer where we undertake appraisals and and reviews and mentorship programs that are invaluable but require the investment of a lot of time and then as you pointed out the cohort of managing partners at Grimshaw plus a couple of key other senior leadership uh, individuals group managing partner our chairman our deputy chairman need to get together and uh, are empowered by uh, the rest of the global partnership to make operational decisions about our global practice and that that can be anything from a business case assessment for promotions or ascension to ownership uh, as well as 
our distribution of uh, budgets and uh, investment in in projects or even strategic directions around our, our vision, our principles or our uh, future growth or business plan. So that is time consuming. I tend to do a pretty good job of buttoning a lot of that stuff up in about half a day. And then the general studio management stuff, I think, is uh, somewhere around a day to a day and a half, which gives me maybe three and a half days. And then all of the time that I should be at home with family or doing things on the weekend where I can uh, be dedicated towards projects, which, you know, I I love to do. Mm, That's great. I want to go back a little bit to your, let's say you've just graduated university, you're a young architect. What were you inspired by back then and what, what, what did you want to try and achieve in architecture? My origins um, in architecture in Melbourne were, were incredible and I loved them, but um, they, they were in a slightly different sphere of design. I, I studied at the University of Melbourne and um, had a fairly innocuous first part of my degree. And I think what the... Um, a really significant moment for me was um, at the completion of that undergraduate course of planning and design, there's a requirement to gain some workplace experience before coming back and completing the architectural uh, degree. Um, And I I was fortunate enough to uh, be recommended to an architect called John Wardle. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Um, And he's he's a greatly celebrated uh, Australian architect uh, with with offices in Melbourne and Sydney and I think uh, has got a a growing international portfolio as well. And I I went there as an incredibly naive um, student. And I believe at the time he had seven people and we were off Church Street down there in Richmond. And the practice had been going, I think, for uh, maybe 11 years or so, but had been... um, fairly fairly modest in terms of the scale of its com- commissions and the size of the studio and uh seeing john work and understanding his level of craft commitment and passion to the resolution of design thinking and his poise and elegance in in the detailing of of buildings was was really quite inspiring and um I had an incredible experience and it helped that because he his practice was on the precipice of exploding and being recognized and winning all of the awards and winning all of the competitions and doing all of the projects, um, it attracted some incredibly talented young architects. And, you know, as, as the, the kid still in school, I benefited from working with this crew and you know Andy Wong and Andrea Vecchiscavalli and Megan Dwyer and all of these people were were just like it was an incredible moment to be a part of so I really enjoyed that I for whatever reason had always had a bit of a uh, analytical and practical bent um, that complemented the more creative side so I decided to go back to university and actually do a double degree in that mm. was both a uh, in architecture, but also in property and construction, um, so that I, I wanted to understand the the mechanisms of financing and delivering architecture, yeah. and it's still something that I'm kind of quite connected to. So I, I lent into that space, and uh, the the project work that uh, I did in Australia was 
you know, some larger multi-residential projects, some residential towers, but a lot of them were single-family homes, beautifully crafted homes, um, some of the earlier stuff at, at John's practice. And one more note, if I could add, is I was offered this incredible experience by John after working there for about 10 months or so. I was thinking that I needed a little bit of a break and a refresh before launching back into university, and I was about to take two months off and go and be an Aussie beach bum and sit around and, and go surfing every day and um john is incredibly persuasive and mounts very cogent um arguments and uh john suggested that instead of doing that what i should do is go and be a uh, laborer on his house that he had just started building in cute and um, I would uh, slave away and uh, work on site and uh, clean up the uh, the building mess that was left behind the contractors. And um, what hope did I have? I, of course, uh, acquiesced and said yes. And it was a great experience and one that has really kept my flame for architecture and design alive even to this day because I learned so much. It was uh, brilliant, visceral, working with my hands, understanding how to lay flooring and then at the end of the day all of the builders would go home at 5 p.m and um the heat would start coming out of the the day and uh I'd, I'd hang back a little bit and john would come over from the studio and i'd talk to him about what happened that day and he'd look at different areas of the building that were maybe not quite fully resolved and we'd, we'd sit there and we'd talk and we'd sketch on the walls about uh how to detail certain junctions we'd cha make changes to the timber cladding on the outside of the house and how it might uh, interface with the steel work that's carrying the glazing and uh, it was in hindsight an incredible experience and I loved it. Mm. it it's interesting in having going through these conversations with people there's often one person at around that stage that had a quite a large impact and asked the kind of young architect to do something a little bit out of the normal path that that was the thing that then inspired them and kind of led them on the path to architecture so uh it, it's that's interesting it it also reminds me of uh, a lot of friends of mine have gone through the rural studio program at auburn where it's a very hands-on process and that i think tends to produce great architects that then work at uh, particularly a lot of the kind of top firms in sort of Seattle and, and, and the Northwest uh, that are sort of really detail focused. I'm going to ask you two final questions. So the first one is, and you kind of answered this a little bit, but I'm going to ask it directly. What inspires you to continue working in LA? There is so much great work that needs to be done, Sam. I love LA. I've really embraced it. I've not for a single beat um, regretted the the move here and I'm completely all in and willing to you know make a commitment to be here indefinitely for the rest of my life. Um, it's been a great experience and it's unexpected. I didn't have strong preconceptions and I think that the drive for me is it's it's a hot mess la's broken and it's a it's a hot mess right mm -hmm. it's this mm -hmm. kind of like i mentioned before this this somewhat disconnected tapestry of of neighborhoods and you know disparate villages and there's a chronic underinvestment in 
the public realm amenity and um, there's areas of LA that have been underserved in terms of shadescape and, uh, and, and green space and public parks and transportation is an issue. But there's so much potential and there's so much energy and there's, there's so much life. And um, a part of me also loves the fact that it's, it's not easy. It's difficult, mm-hmm. right? There's, a, mm-hmm. there's sequel, there's two-year entitlements, there's uh, adverse economic conditions to try and realize buildings in, there's um, challenges around sophistication of supply chain and, uh, and you know, prefabrication and uh, DFMA and, uh, you know, lack of um, integrated uh, delivery. And, you know, there's there's all of these challenges. And I like that it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I like that there's a challenge and I like that it's not finished. And I think I'm going to work as hard as I can to make as much as a positive impact as uh, as I possibly can and know that it's uh, barely going to scratch the surface, but that's okay. I love that answer. It's why I think I really like LA as well. When you come here, there's still so much work to be done. It's still a, such a young city that grew very quickly over a few decades, kind of the middle of the century. And now it's almost like it grew too fast. And now we're kind of like having to come back and figure out, okay, how do we actually make this like a functional city now? Final question. What are your three favorite buildings or places in, in LA? Oh, Sam, uh, this is uh, the perfect uh, anxiety-inducing question for any architect, right? Because uh, the the uh, fear of being uh, judged by your peers by getting this answer wrong is uh, is real. The fear is real. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me let me address it this way. I'm actually going to lean into um, sentimentality and make uh, my answers uh, very personal. Um, I think my my engagement with LA all the way up until the point that I visited here for the first time after committing to relocate my life here had had always been um, through a filter and uh, the filter of film. And uh, I'm going to say that my, my first favorite would be the Bradbury building because of how iconic that interior is um blade runner is you know again leaning into the cliche like most other architects blade runner is one of my favorite uh films and uh if an interior set could win an oscar um i think the bradbury building should be our our first and only nomination so that's number one number two i'm going to say dodger stadium big part of moving here was um, the assimilation into American culture. And uh, I'd never really been surrounded by it. I mean, I'd, I married one in the UK, but an American in London is uh, not an American in LA. And uh, it, it was something that, you know, I, I was really conscious of was embracing the culture here and learning what I could. And I had never watched baseball, knew nothing about it. One of the earliest things that I did was join a local recreation um, softball team and met a bunch of friends, a bunch of buddies, and uh, went to a bunch of Dodger games and learned this incredible American pastime and became obsessive about it and fixated on it. And it gave me a sense of community and belonging that I don't think would have been uh, present otherwise. And it really helped create a, um, a generous and soft landing. And, uh, you know, those, I ho- I'll hold those friendships dearly for the rest of my life. And um, th- they've been a big part of why I've had such a love affair with the relocation over here. 
Dodger Stadium, what a place. My third really leaning into personal obscurity here is going to be one of the under-celebrated Richard Neutra buildings, which is the Eagle Rock Recreation Center. So we live in Eagle Rock and uh, we relocated uh, from London directly to Eagle Rock and we've been here the entire time. It was recommended to us by uh, a colleague of my wife and we were told it would be a great little community uh, to raise children in and um, we landed here uh, not knowing a thing really more than that and um, the recreation center there is has been like a consistent part of our lives and we spent uh, a bit of time there in fact the summer concert series on sunday evenings has been a, a highlight over the last few weeks we saw a, a beatles impersonation there the other week and an abba one uh, two weeks ago which was uh Phenomenal, I would say, um, is my uh, official appraisal of the quality of that concert. And uh, it's a really, I think, underappreciated building because it's it's clever. You know, a lot of the, the he's obviously more celebrated for his residential architecture, and a lot of the ideas and thinking around the configuration and the adaptability of building envelope are present within this rec center. So big sliding and movable panels that can be reconfigured and it's kind of ideal for that multi-use uh, functionality required for a, a community rec center like that and boy does it need some tlc i don't think they've touched it since it was built in the early 50s but it's you know it's a sentimental fave perfect i will i'll make sure to check that out next time i'm in eagle rock andrew thank you so much for joining the show you've been great to talk with and hope to talk to you again soon thanks sam Loved it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.